Good morning. Welcome, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew together as a church. This morning we are at Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 23. We're on page 813 if you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers, we call them chapters. The little numbers, we call them verses. Uh, we are at Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Jesus, you spoke a word of rebuke and stilled the storm. And you speak today through your word. Your word is always at work. And so we ask, Lord, that today it would be at work for blessing and for life. That we would hear and receive your word rightly and humbly and obediently so that we might find the life that you came to give us. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. In early September, the year 1900, Galveston was one of the biggest and the most promising cities in Texas. But with almost no warning, it was slammed by a huge hurricane. The city's highest point is about nine feet above sea level. But the hurricane suddenly caused about 15 feet of water to surge across the entire island. About 8,000 people died. That was about 20% of the city's population. Uh, It's a higher death toll than any natural disaster in U.S. history before or since. And what soon became simply known as the Great Storm left a pile of debris that was 30 feet high and three miles long. Crews had attempted to dump corpses at sea, but after they started washing ashore, the crews instead had to burn them on the beach day and night for weeks on end. Clara Barton, the founder of the Red Cross, upon visiting the misery and the wreckage at Galveston, said this, It was one of those monstrosities of nature which defied exaggeration and fiendishly laughed at all tame attempts of words to picture the scene. The Galveston storm is one of many events that we could think of that soberly remind us about the chaos of this world. Many people today are living in terrible fear about the climate after decades of warnings about the impending end of the world even though in the last century climate 
related deaths have declined by 98%. According to one recent global survey, nearly 60% of teenagers say that they are very or extremely worried about the climate, with 45% of them saying that this fear is negatively affecting their daily lives. And as the reactions to the COVID pandemic showed us more clearly than ever, for all of our prosperity and all of our longevity, our society is marked by a profound terror in the face of chaos and danger in the natural world. It all seems so out of control. But in our passage today, Jesus is demonstrating that he's in control of the chaos of this world. Jesus is showing us that when we see and know who he is, in the face of chaos, we not only can, but we must trade our cowardice for confidence. Not confidence in ourselves or in our wealth or in our expertise, but confidence in him. We are in a section of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is demonstrating his authority. The word authority is something of a bad word in our culture. And while the Bible does teach that human authority can and often does get abused, it also says that when human authority is a reflection of God's authority, it's good for us and it's good for our world. Jesus is revealing himself in this part of Matthew to be rightly worthy of of our submission, another bad word in our culture. Jesus is showing that he is worthy of our submission because he is God's authoritative king. In Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus teaches the famous Sermon on the Mount uh, to his disciples. He's showing them what their lives must look like as citizens of his kingdom in this world. And you might remember that that whole passage ends in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, like this, Matthew is summarizing how the crowd reacts to what Jesus has just been saying. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. And so now in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is recording for us a series of 10 miracles. They all are showing Jesus physically demonstrating the authority that he was verbally declaring in chapters 5 to 7, the miracles demonstrate what he had been declaring. And so after three miracles of physically healing outsiders, uh, we have the episode that we talked about last week. Jesus speaks authoritatively to two would-be disciples. And so now today, on the heels of his interactions with these two men, Jesus is demonstrating now for his existing disciples that he really is who he's claimed to be. That he really does have the kind of authority that demands all of their confidence, no matter what's happening around them or how out of control it might seem to them. Now, the passage is primarily about who Jesus is. But Jesus' identity is the foundation of discipleship. Jesus' identity is the basis and the motivation for following him, for living with him, for living like him, for living for him. You can see from the very beginning of this episode about Jesus' identity, that's what it's mainly about. You can see from the beginning, though, that it's also about what it means to be his disciple. 
He has just rebuffed one potential disciple and then encouraged another discouraged disciple to follow him. That was last week. And now in verse 23, you hear this. He gets into the boat and we're told that his disciples followed him. The same word. Jesus is taking his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Literally, he's taking them to the beyond. And right away, Matthew wants to remind us that as he begins doing this, he is in charge. They are following him. But you quickly hear in verse 24 that the authoritative master Jesus has led his students right into chaos. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Uh, The use of the word behold, it's an old-timey word, but it's the Bible's way of saying something like what we mean when we say, whoa. It's a way of drawing your attention to something really important or sudden. The word for storm here is the usual word for shaking. Uh, It often gets translated as earthquake. Uh, This story appears in many of the gospel accounts, and Matthew's the only one who calls it a shaking. But it's not just any old shaking. Matthew says it's a great shaking. It is no ordinary storm. It is apocalyptic. Now remember that Jesus' disciples were originally fishermen. They have been fishing and sailing this lake for their entire lives. They would have been familiar with the storms and the squalls that regularly struck the Sea of Galilee. They are using one of their own boats, which has been built to survive the lake's usual storms. But Jesus has not led them into one of those. It is absolute chaos. It's literally overwhelming them. The word here says that the boat is being hidden beneath the waves. There's nothing that the disciples are able to do about it in spite of all of their skill and all of their experience. But then you hear about two very different responses to the disaster. Jesus, the master, is sleeping soundly, but his disciples are panicking hysterically. The boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. In different ways, these two reactions get to the frailty of human nature. First of all, in Jesus' calm and confident sleeping in the midst of the storm, we see that Jesus really is human. Even as the perfect human, Jesus needs rest. He needs rejuvenation. He's gotten very tired after all of this ministry. And in that sense, Jesus is frail and vulnerable, like all of us are. But you also see in Jesus' humanity that he's put his hope in God. That Jesus is able to sleep trusting that the Father is going to care for him, even when he's in this ultimately passive and unconscious posture that all of us spend a third of our lives in, sleeping. But in the disciples' panic, you're seeing a darker side of human frailty. In Jesus' human weakness, he trusts God to care for him. But in the disciples, and so often our own human weakness, they and we are overwhelmed with terror. When push comes to shove, the disciples don't believe that God is capable of meeting their needs in overwhelming chaos. 
even when God's king is right there with them. Now remember, these are experienced fishermen. Many of us would probably panic at the kinds of storms that they were used to. Uh, I know if it was me, the waves would probably not be the only reason my clothes were getting wet. (laughs) These are men who know what they're doing. But here they are out of their minds with fear. And so they wake Jesus up. They cry out to him for him to do something. Matthew frames their shouts in only three sharp Greek words. Lord, save. The last one you have to add two words for English. We're perishing. Only one word in Greek. Uh, You're seeing that it's not just outsiders who need God's salvation. But that it's also Jesus' own disciples, the ultimate insiders who need to be saved. They and we need to be rescued from terror and chaos and death. We have no ability to overcome them on our own, even if we are otherwise calm and experienced. We do not merely need a teacher. Remember, that's what the scribe had called him, the scribe that got the stiff arm from Jesus. We do not merely need a teacher. We need a Lord. We need somebody with real authority and power and control. The sleepiness of Jesus, even in the storm, shows us his true but trusting humanity. But when he wakes up, we quickly see that he is not merely human and certainly not weakly human. Jesus continues to demonstrate his authority to rule with God's identity and in God's place. And the first way that Jesus does this is by confronting fear. By confronting fear. Jesus is not upset that they've woken him up from his nap. And surprisingly, he's not even upset about the storm. But Jesus is upset about how the disciples are acting. Jesus says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Uh, The wording here is actually quite a bit stronger than what that sounds like to us. Uh, Something like this. Why are you being cowards, you little faiths? Jesus does not give them a pat on the head. He does not give them a hug. He does not tiptoe around their feelings. He does not tell them that he understands that they're just living their truth. Jesus calls cowardice for what it is. It is a failure of trust and confidence in him. The issue is not fear itself. Fear is a normal and often godly response to danger. When you read about Jesus' final night before he is arrested and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is very clear that Jesus is afraid to go to the cross. But he goes anyways because he trusts in the Father. The issue here is that the disciples' fear has become so great that it has caused their faith to wilt. That's why Jesus kind of insults them by calling them little faiths. They are full of despair, and Jesus is not impressed with them. It is not an excuse to say, well, this is just how I feel. Our emotions are always very real, and they are often outside of our conscious control. But there are many times when our emotions are wrong and even sinful. 
One writer says that someone whom Jesus calls a little faith believes that the laws of nature are impervious to Jesus' lordship. Jesus expects a confidence as extensive as his lordship over everything. How extensive is your confidence in Jesus' lordship this morning? Do you think he can only handle little parts of your life, maybe the little spiritual parts of your life? Or do you think he can handle everything? After hearing a lot of teaching from Jesus about what it means to be a disciple, that's the Sermon on the Mount, after seeing Jesus perform a few miracles that clearly demonstrated who he is, that was the beginning of chapter 8, uh, this is now the very first place in the Gospel of Matthew where the disciples actually do anything. And you quickly see that it is not a pretty picture. They are doing quite badly. And it's striking, isn't it, that Jesus deals with their fear before he deals with the storm? Jesus is more concerned with working on us than he is with working on our circumstances. He is more focused on saving us from our sin than he is on saving us from our suffering. But we often expect him to do the opposite. We say, hey Jesus, go fix those problems over there, uh, but leave me alone with my biggest problem, my heart, my desires. Three years ago, when everyone really started panicking over COVID, I was surprised by how many Christians were so worried about dying even as they continued to claim to trust in the one who defeated death. I heard the same thing from a bunch of different pastors, congregants who were not just afraid, not just being prudent, but who were clearly terrified and yet would often not admit it. They would insist that they weren't afraid, that they were instead just looking out for other people. Like the disciples then, getting thrown into overwhelming chaos can reveal some very dark corners of cowardice among God's people. Jesus wants and expects us to trust him, no matter how overwhelmed and how out of control we are. Cowardice and safetyism are not virtues. I hope and I pray, I have been praying for our church that the last few years of stress testing will have strengthened us to show a deeper and more peaceful confidence in the Lord Jesus when the next crisis comes, even though it will genuinely be dangerous, even though it will genuinely be frightening. In his goodness, Jesus questions our fear and confronts our fear. But he does not only confront our fear. He also, the story shows us, conquers the chaos. Jesus confronts our fear, but he also confronts and conquers the chaos. He is frustrated and disappointed with the terrified disciples. They and we should know better and act better. But Jesus does not say to them, you're not trusting me right now. I'm going back to sleep. Wake me up when you are ready to trust me more. See you later. Even though they are sinfully panicking, even though they are little faiths, Jesus helps them anyways. Jesus is the savior of cowards. 
Not just cowards outside the church, but cowards inside the church too. We too need to be saved from ourselves and the chaos of this world. This portrait of the disciples is not at all flattering. But they do at least have a weak, small faith in Jesus. They cry out for salvation to the Lord. And so what an encouragement to us today to see that Jesus responds even to the littlest faith. Even to the weakest, most unimpressive faith. Jesus does call cowardice and despair for what they are. But don't miss the fact, the more important fact, that Jesus loves his disciples in all of their failure. And so he works mightily for them when they come to him in that failure. Do not miss that. You hear in verse 26 that he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so imagine it. You have the expert fishermen there at their wits' ends. Their boat is literally being swallowed by the waves. They are screaming at Jesus. They are hanging on for dear life. And then he gets up, he yells at the storm, and immediately the wind stops. The sun comes out from behind the clouds. The sea immediately goes as smooth as glass. Jesus does not only rule over our hearts with all of their fears and their failures. Jesus also rules over this world with all of its misery and its chaos. Jesus is showing the disciples why they should not have been so afraid. Because of who he is. Because he's far more than a man. He's God in the flesh. He's come to rule over his own creation. The first words of the Bible say that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse tells us that there is this primordial sea churning across the entire planet, but that God's spirit hovers over it. In the creation myths of the ancient Near East, the gods were always a product of chaos. And that chaos was often expressed in these creation myths as a churning, terrifying sea. Ultimate reality in the ancient Near East, just like today in the modern evolutionary worldview, ultimate reality was chaos, chance, disorder. Chaos was over the gods, not vice versa. But the creation account of the Bible is provocatively and totally different. It tells us that the God who has always existed, has always been what he's always going to be, who has never needed anything, that that God, as an overflow of his love and his goodness, created the entire universe out of nothing. And so rules over the entire thing. God, the Bible tells us, is not in competition with chaos. He wisely and calmly rules over it. The creation account of Genesis shows how God brings light out of darkness and order out of disorder. And he does it merely by speaking. God's dominion over the sea is this motif running throughout the entire Bible. We already heard some of it in our call to worship. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. 
The God of glory thunders over many waters. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Psalm 93 says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 50, God says this, Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. The ultimate ruler over the world is not chance. It's not fossil fuels. It's not science. It's not Bill Gates. It's not the government. The ultimate ruler over the entire world is God. This scriptural motif is what Jesus is drawing on as he gets up from his nap and rebukes the storm. He is showing his disciples, he's showing us that he is this creator God who rules over every disorder and every disaster. Does that mean that Jesus will definitely save us from every form of chaos? No, it does not mean that. Those men on the boat would all go to suffer horribly painful deaths that Jesus did not save them from. But it does mean that Jesus rules over every form of chaos. It does mean that he is perfectly capable of rescuing us from them whenever he wants to. It does mean that in the midst of all of these forms of chaos, we don't need to be afraid because he's there with us and because in the end he will rescue us from the greatest, the most final form of chaos, are drowning in death and that beyond death in heaven and then in the recreation of this world there will no longer be any disasters to overwhelm us. So that's why they, that's why we need to put our confidence in Him even and even especially when we are facing the chaos because of who Jesus is. He confronts fear He conquers chaos. He deserves our confidence. The rescued disciples are beginning to understand what all this means. They understand what his power over the natural world says about who he is. And so after this sudden calm in verse 27, we hear this. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. I struggle to get my phone or my dog to obey me. But Jesus is a different kind of man. He is not just a more wise or a more powerful man than me or you. He is truly human as his nap, his comical nap shows us. But he's not merely human. Jesus the church confesses and we believe, is God in human flesh. He's fully God and fully man. And so his own creation must and will obey him. Viruses and hurricanes, asteroids and rattlesnakes, arteries and aortas. And so if that's who Jesus is, Why should his disciples live in terror, even in chaos? Even if and when we're afraid, and we will be afraid, we can trust him. Even if and when we face suffering far beyond our ability to deal with it, 
we can and we should be confident in Him. He's God in the flesh. He rules with perfect love and wisdom, not just over the world out there somewhere, but He also rules with perfect love and wisdom over your world. Let's pray. Father, we confidently confess again that you are king. What good news that is. What a terrible mess we'd be in if you left us alone to figure out this world and to try to rule over it on our own. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have entrusted all rule and all authority to your beloved son, Jesus. We're so grateful that he rules over the chaos of this world and over our lives with perfect goodness and wisdom. We don't understand why we don't get rescued from all of the storms we wish we were being rescued from. But we ask for your help in trusting in your goodness. Give us confidence in the midst of great suffering and fear. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.